0: Hello, everyone. I'm Grace Beatty, and welcome to Wicked Women, the podcast. Step back in time with me as we learn about some of the most infamous and maligned women in history. Speaking with leading experts, I will discuss these women's backstories and the circumstances that gave them the title of Wicked. In this season of Wicked Women, I will be focusing on some well-known and some lesser-known women in history who have acquired an unsavory reputation, this season will analyze the lives and legacies of Alexandra Fyodorovna Romanov, the last Tsaritsa of Russia, Queen Mary I, more popularly known as Bloody Mary, Catherine Howard, Henry VIII's fifth wife, who was executed for adultery, Empress Wu Zhao, also known as Wu Zetian, the only Chinese empress to rule in her own name, and Empress Theodora, a former sex worker who became empress of the Byzantine Empire. In the end, this podcast does not look to excuse or dispute the wrongs committed by some of these women, but it is also not looking to completely villainize them. Instead, I hope this can be a conversation starter on the complicated legacies prescribed to women in history. In today's episode, I will be analyzing Empress Wu Zetian of China, the only woman in Imperial China to reign as Emperor in her own right. Discussing Empress Wu's life and legacy with me today will be Jonathan Clements, a historian, professor and TV presenter who specializes in the history of East Asia, and Mike Dash, a New York Times best-selling author and historian. Continue listening to learn more about this fascinating and underappreciated woman from history. Most countries have a woman ruler somewhere in their history. Some of these women come instantly to mind. Russia's Catherine the Great, ancient Egypt's Hatshepsut, England's Elizabeth I, and Sweden's Christina. Women who broke all the barriers for their gender. Some, like Hatshepsut and Christina, even took on the title of a male ruler in their own right. However, There is a woman who rarely features on this list, but is no less extraordinary, a woman who is remembered more for her rumored scandalous life than her achievements. This woman is Empress Wu Zetian, the only female in Chinese history to rule in her own name. Empress Wu, similarly to Empress Theodora, has a story steeped in rumor, political agendas, and missing documents. There is no way for people today to truly know the truth of her story or the accuracy of her legacy. The legend paints her as a murderous, vindictive, power-hungry vixen. In recent years, some historians have called for her to be recognized as a proto-feminist, a woman who broke the glass ceiling and rose higher than any female before or after her in Imperial China. Empress Wu was a woman far ahead of her time, But her legacy has been blighted and silenced over the centuries. It is changed numerous times, sometimes changed by Wu herself, and the countless versions only help to cloud the already uncertain story. It is perhaps best revealed by her tombstone, which was purposefully left blank by her descendants, leaving her story to be swept away by the winds of time. It is believed that Wu Zetian, known in her early life as Wu Zhu, was born in 624 AD, seven years into the reign of the Tang Dynasty. The era of the Tang Dynasty saw women break out of the previous confinements that expected women to remain in their homes. Women took a more active and visible role in society, and Wu benefited from these changing views. Wu was born into an affluent family and she was educated in a way that would have been unheard of in her mother's early years. It is believed that her father, Wu Shi Wu, was involved in government and ran a successful lumber business. Here's historian Mike Dash about Wu's father.
1: She was the daughter of um, a man who'd started off his life as a, a, as a wood merchant. Normally, someone from that sort of background would never have got anywhere near the Chinese imperial system or the Chinese royal family. Um, but she lived or she or her father was born at a time of um, considerable disruption in China. The, the, um, the Sui dynasty was, was failing. Um, there was a rebellion building against it, which was led by the Li family, who had have found the Tang dynasty. Um, and so there were military opportunities. And, and Wu's father moved from being a, wool, uh, uh, a wood merchant to being a general um, and because he was a successful general and was involved with a successful rebellion and the founding period of the Tang Dynasty, he was given opportunities. He became a a regional governor um, and uh, an official of the Chinese state system. So when Wu was born, um, she was already effectively part of the Chinese state system and the sort of person, the sort of woman um, who would have an opportunity to join the imperial court. Um, So she didn't come sort of literally from nothing.
0: When Wu was 14, she was brought to the Imperial Palace as a concubine of the fifth rank, which, as Jonathan Clements puts it...
2: We should bear in mind that at the beginning of Wu's career, she was effectively a chambermaid. She was changing the sheets in Taizong's chamber. And uh, there's all kinds of noise and static and fake news about this, some of which is generated by Wu herself, some of it by the old Book of Tang, some by the new Book of Tang, some by her her various detractors and supporters over the years. So it's very difficult to separate things out. Wu herself changed her story repeatedly about what her teenage years were like because originally the you know she was a, a very close personal friend of the taizong emperor and that's why she was changing the sheets in his room because she was the only woman he trusted and they loved each other and it was great of course then after he dies and she's accused of banging his his son suddenly they were just good friends but she's really in love with the son and 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 she was only a chambermaid then but but he fell in love with her so so there and this is all you know spin and lies and it's very difficult to, to separate what the truth might be with, with, with a lot of Wu sources.
0: This is where the myth of Wu begins. The myth states that Wu first came to Emperor Taizong's attention one day while he was training an unruly horse. Exacerbated, he asked if anyone would be willing to tame the wild animal. Wu stepped forward, stating, I can control him, but I shall need three things. First, an iron whip, second, an iron mace, and third, a dagger. If the iron whip does not bring him to obedience, I will use the iron mace to beat his head, and if that does not do it, I will use the dagger and cut his throat. Taizong was so taken by Wu's spirit that he made her his private secretary until his death. When Taizong died in 649, as tradition expected, all of his concubines shaved their heads and retired to monasteries to pray for the previous emperor's soul. Wu remained at the monastery anywhere from one to three years. But on the anniversary of Emperor Taizong's death, the new emperor, Zheizong, came to the monastery to light incense and pray for his soul. He came upon Wu and remembered his previous love for her. This is another part of the Wu myth. As Jonathan points out,
2: so so what it boils down to i think is that what we have here is a woman with the most ridiculous world-class movie star charisma you can possibly imagine because there are points in her life when she literally has an army backing her up but she's got there purely on her force of will she's got there from the very, very lowest point, from, from basically being sent to a nunnery, uh, I think in her early 20s, and told, you're going to be praying there for the soul of the Taizong Emperor for the rest of your life, you know, thanks for your service. And within three years, being back in the palace, as this kind of honey trap for for the Gaozong Emperor, seducing him, manipulating him, removing her rivals, becoming his official consort.
0: When the Emperor returned to the palace, his wife, Empress Wang, shockingly called Wu out of the monastery and back into the palace as a concubine of the second rank. This was unheard of in Chinese history, where previous concubines and empresses were expected to retire quietly for the rest of their days. Some officials even claimed that this obvious sexual relationship between Wu and Emperor Jaejong was incestuous, since Wu had been his father's concubine, but Jizong silenced all voices of dissent, and Wu began to quickly rise at court. Wu rapidly bore Jai Zong four sons, Liang in 652, Li Xian in 653, another Li Xian in 655, and Li Dan in 662. This fact sent Empress Wang into a rage, for she hadn't borne any sons during her marriage to Jai Zong. But Wu seemed untouchable. She had the Emperor's love and her own extraordinary wit. And Wu had her eyes on the Empress's title. Here's Mike Dash. The fact that she was young and beautiful and
1: willing to do things to, to require power undoubtedly would have helped her rise. But um, you know, that in itself would not, rem- and the fact that she was from a reasonably uh, senior family. I mean, her mother had been a a collateral member of the previous dynasty, the Sui dynasty, and as I say, her father was a successful general. But I mean, that wasn't close enough to being a great family to normally have landed her anywhere near the role of empress.
0: This is where another dark myth for Wu has sprung up. The legend goes that soon after giving birth to a daughter, Wu enjoyed a visit from Empress Wang. However, after the empress left, Wu smothered her own newborn daughter and claimed that Empress Wang had poisoned the child during her visit, in revenge for Wu's meteoric rise at court. Jae Zong believed Wu's tale, and banished Empress Wang, making Wu his empress in 655. The real story of how Wu's infant daughter died will never be known. Some argue that Empress Wang really did murder the baby, others that Wu did, Still others argue that the baby died of natural causes, but Wu seized the opportunity for her own political gain. Whatever the truth is, the legend gets even darker. While under house arrest, Empress Wu cut off the previous Empress's limbs and drowned her in a vat of wine. This part of the legend has been questioned by historians in more recent centuries. As Mike Dash states, That story! Is
1: very reminiscent of a, a much earlier sort of monster story in Chinese history, which involves the first empress of the Han dynasty, which is the second of the Chinese dynasties. And so we're going back now to about 200 years before the birth of Christ, or six or seven hundred years before Wu's Um and, and this empress, whose name was um, Lu Zhu, um, was, you know, remembered as the the worst monster in chinese history the worst female monster in chinese history and again there is a horror story associated with her where whereby um she, she was sort of the opposite of Wu in the sense that she was already empress and she was trying to deal with ambitious courtesans and concubines um and her emperor fell for a particularly beautiful young girl and the empress dealt with her again in a very similarly ruthless manner um She supposedly had all of her limbs locked off, destroyed her vocal cords with acid, had her blinded and then threw her into the imperial piggery um, and invited her husband to come along and look at this peculiar creature, the human pig. And when the emperor saw his favourite concubine reduced to this sort of appalling state, he never spoke again. Now, the the closeness of that story in terms of the way in which the the rival has dealt with is such that, you know, it's very suspicious, realistic. I mean, it was a very well-known story, most, you know, a lot of Chinese people, a lot of Chinese historians would certainly be aware of it. So to link Wu to a story which was similar in terms of the whole limb lopping and ruthlessness probably suggests that, you know, a, a parallel is being made by a, by a writer, that they're trying to associate her uh, with Lu Ji, um, and hence the actual specifics of what happened to the Empress and, and the pure concubine who, who died at this time, I don't think we can recover that. I think it's unlikely that they were necessarily dealt with in such a dramatic way and, and such a physic, you know, physically perhaps impossible way, actually, as well. Um, but she dealt with them, I don't see any particular need to doubt. But there's clearly a sort of a bit of lesson uh, making and mold drawing going on. And you know, this is a, a, a dramatic example, but it's a sort of example that applies to a lot of what we is alleged to have done, and there are plenty of much more boring examples where similar sorts of you know, links are being made between her and various other people.
0: Empress Wu had achieved what many claimed to be her chief goal, chief wife and empress of China. Jai was an invalid for most of his reign, and after a debilitating stroke in 660, Wu began attending imperial meetings alongside her husband, hidden behind a curtain by his side. In most cases, she ran the country entirely in his stead, as Jonathan emphasizes.
2: The the words uh, in the history books are, um, the emperor sat there with folded hands while the empress spoke. And uh, it's not clear what folded hands means, but it it, it seems to me that, that, I mean, Gaozong, he was able to walk, uh, barely, but his ability to, to speak and communicate was incredibly compromised. and and Wu acted as his interpreter. So basically, she got to say whatever it was she thought he needed to say, and he couldn't really stop her for decades.
0: When Zhezong died in 683, his and Wu's son, Li Xian, ascended to the throne. Li Xian took the title Emperor Zhang Zhang, with Wu acting as regent. Within six weeks, Emperor Zhang Zhang was removed from the throne by Wu's orders, and replaced by her younger son, Li Dan, who became Emperor Rizong. In 690, Rizong abdicated in favour of his mother, who became emperor in her own right. Now, a bit about semantics when it comes to her new title. Here's Jonathan.
2: The, The English language doesn't really have a distinction between the woman that's married to the guy in charge and the woman that's in charge as empress. Chinese actually has two different words for this concept. Um, And and you'll hear some people refer to her as Emperor Wu on the understanding that, like Hatshepsut, she was a a female figure in a male role. And so the idea that Wu uh, was the only woman to have ruled China in her own name is so mind-blowingly huge that I think it just flies over a lot of people's heads. They don't just see how incredible that would have been.
0: Wu ruled in her own right in the new Zhao Dynasty for 15 years. However, in Jonathan's opinion, Empress,
2: Empress Wu's reign began when she was the plenipotentiary regent for Gaozong. Um, so for 30 years, she presided over the absolute height of the Tang Dynasty, for which he took all the credit, despite being disabled, you know, completely and utterly um, uh, incapable.
0: Wu's reign was a time of prosperity for China. Wu appointed generals and government officials based on skill, not ancestry or title. She personally oversaw the examination of potential candidates and wrote a handbook titled Rules for Officials that all generals and officials were required to read. Wu lessened taxes for farmers and passed a number of agrarian reforms. She expanded the influence of Buddhism throughout the country in a time when Confucianism was the main religion. Wu built numerous Buddhist temples during her reign and called for religious tolerance throughout the country. In addition to this, Wu passed a number of laws that supported women's rights. As historian John Key wrote in his book China a History, a ceiling was imposed on the value of marriage dowries. The mourning period for deceased mothers was made the same as that for deceased fathers, and among her various literary commissions was a collection of biographies on eminent women. Finally, she promoted art and literature within her court. A poet and artist herself, she helped create a culture of literary and artistic pursuits that flourished in the later years of the Tang Dynasty. With these numerous achievements and relatively peaceful, depending on which story you believe, transition to power, John Key states, Wu might have ranked among China's most outstanding rulers, but for the handicap of gender. Wu was formally deposed by her son, the previous emperor Zhang Zhang, in 705, and she died at the age of 82 a few months later. Wu was buried beside her husband, Zhe Zong, in the Qiangling Mausoleum on Mount Liang, which had been built during Zhezong's lifetime. Zhezong's massive monument chronicles his many governmental and military achievements. Wu's monument, however, which sits next to her husband's, has no epitaph. According to Jonathan,
2: Empress Wu's kind of influence lasts for about 15 years after her death because the women who grew up during her lifetime regarded the situation in that lifetime as normal and therefore expected um, to be able to continue. And so you have her daughter and her granddaughter trying to kind of perpetuate um, the way that Empress Wu ran things and you have the, the male establishment desperately clamping down on it to try and stop it. And and, then, and, and it's after that point that you get the sudden shutdown on Wu's reign, it stops being discussed as a golden age. It starts being discussed as this awful abomination that can never be allowed to happen again.
0: While Wu's story took place over 1300 years ago, it still fascinates people today. She is known for being ruthless and bloodthirsty, a woman who broke the rules in all the wrong and most disturbing ways. But she was also an extraordinary woman who rose to the pinnacle of power in a country where women were valued at the same level, and in some cases lower, than livestock. While many historians soon after Wu's death tried to paint her as a bloodthirsty tyrant, the evidence seems to point more to the fact that she was popular. Otherwise, how could a woman in that era have governed in her husband's stead, deposed her son, a sitting emperor, and ruled in her own name for 15 years without successful opposition. She was either extremely lucky or surrounded by extremely powerful loyalists and allies. The sources that were produced on Wu in the years following her death often exploited and exaggerated the negative stories of her reign as a way to prove that women should not be in power. Here's Mike Dash.
1: When we go this far back in Chinese history, there are essentially very, very few sources, and there's only one very significant one, which is the official court um, state history of each dynasty, which is compiled after the end of the dynasty by one of its successors, so it's hundreds of years later, but normally by by you know, professional academics who have access to state records, which then go on to become destroyed in various Cataclysms. Um, So we have the we have the history that's that's been written and it's based on primary sources, but the actual sources themselves don't exist anymore for us to do cross checks. Now, the point of Chinese historiography is not just to um, create a record of a dynasty; it is to provide examples and lessons for future rulers. Now, that matters a lot when you are dealing with usurpers. I mean, one of the interesting things about Chinese historiography from that point is the way in which it legitimizes some. Chinese um, dynasties, for example, at least twice, the, the Han and the Ming dynasty, uh, have been founded by peasants. Now, that's not something which is possible in the West, essentially, because being a peasant is a, an absolute bar. I mean, it's, it's too low a, a social status. That doesn't happen in China because the way in which the Chinese look at it is that anybody who becomes emperor has, by definition, been chosen by heaven to be emperor. And that means that no matter what their social background is, that's what heaven wants. And so you can you know, retrospectively legitimise a successful rebellion led by a peasant. Um, and that peasant can be a very highly effective emperor, one of the best emperors in, in some respects. Um, so Chinese historiography exists to sort of you know, retrospectively look back and judge uh, what happened in history. And as I say, mainly that's for the purpose of, of instructing future rulers. Because Wu Ru was a woman, she was an example to be dealt with, avoided. Um, uh, and, yeah, you know, one of the main aims therefore of the historiography of her period is to show that she was a terrible ruler. Because mm-hmm. to suggest that she was a great ruler would confound the whole reason why women shouldn't be allowed to rule. I mean, women shouldn't be allowed to rule because they're not capable of being good rulers. Therefore, no woman ruler could possibly be a good ruler. Now, all of that means that the historiography of Rue's reign is extremely difficult for us to interpret, because it does tell us, I think, hopefully with some accuracy, what happened. But it gives us a very highly disordered picture of why it happened. Um, so, from that point of view, so I talk at a very great length, I apologise, but from that point of view, it is very difficult indeed to, to get to the real Wu. I mean, I think it's very difficult to get to the real emperor of, of any sort of, in any time, it, with very few exceptions. Um, we can't honestly say we know Chinese rule. The Wu is probably the one we know least, or at least can be least confident that we understand. Um, and so I think, you know, from that point of view, just understanding how she ruled and, and whether she was popular there are two, two ways of looking at... There is the courtroom, who is the person who is trying to dominate power at the centre, in the capital, running a very complex and pre-existing court system which you can't simply remake um, because it's how everything runs and how everything has always run, how everyone has been educated to understand things. And you know, to try and remake it would cause catastrophe and collapse. Um, so she has to go within an existing system. And that means she has to behave in certain ways. Um, and those are... That's where the sort of evil manipulative scheming lives, so to so speak. Then there's the rule of China. Now those are two very different things because in so far as we can see, Wu was a very highly successful ruler of China. I mean she ruled over a period of peace, she ruled over a period of expansion, she ruled over a period of prosperity. Again, you know I mean a lot of that maybe is not directly down to her because the Chinese system is designed to allow those things to happen. But plenty of emperors have managed to mess that up in pretty spectacular ways by appointing the wrong people, um, you know, by starting too many wars, by spending too much money. Wu was in power for half a century, at a time when the Tang dynasty was establishing itself, stabilizing, and and becoming you know wealthier and more culturally glorious. And you cannot separate that from the fact that she was the ruler. So to simply look at what the historiography says about her actions inside the court is to see only 10% of what she means as a ruler. Part of the problem is that we haven't studied Wu enough. I mean, that's true history generally. Um, and the area where we have studied her least is as ruler of China, rather than you know, imperial despot inside you know, the, the, the imperial palace, um, because we have much less evidence. And that's really where the, the additional work needs to be done, I think.
0: Even as historians attempted to hold Wu up as a warning for female power, she posed a unique and difficult problem to contemporary and later historians. As Jonathan states, Under,
2: under Confucian rules, it's rude to address a lady by her name. Uh, you don't do that. And so that's supposed to be chivalrous. But of course, it has within it this chauvinism as well, because it means that people who write history books in in ancient China don't mention who women are. Everyone's just, I mean, people people weren't that sure for a long time what Wu's real name was, what her first name was. Um, Today, we assume it's Zhao uh, because of what her Buddhist nun's name was. And it was figured that was probably a a, a corruption of it. Um, And also, after she came to power, certain words were, excise because you're not allowed to use an emperor's given name in official documents during their lifetime because it's rude. So words that disappeared from the Chinese record were assumed to possibly be Wu's real name as Wu's just her surname. Um but of course what this means is is that you have 5000 years of Chinese history where a lot of women are marginalized or their stories are only told by men and they're normally told by men to satisfy an agenda which is um, women have to be kept out of power. A woman's words can cost a man his job. A woman's man can a woman's words can cost a man his head. Uh, or a woman in power is like a hen that crows at daybreak, um, which is a a, a very famous quote which was dragged up from the Bronze Age and, and used in Wu's reign um to point out just how how awful an idea it would be for a woman to be in charge. So because Confucians are writing the, the Chinese dynastic histories, and because the, the dynastic histories have to show a mode of employment, they have to show a great beginning and a golden age and then a decline, and then it all falls apart at the end. Why does it fall apart well it's probably a woman's fault and, and so so many did dynasties end with some terrible uh concubine turning up and ruining the life of the palace and and killing the just and, and so um you get these stories, uh, which then cause people to kind of look for women to fit in that slot as well. Um, so that all becomes uh, a very, very difficult way. You have to kind of tease out the true stories. And, and often you're working, um, particularly this was true with my, with my Wu book, you're often working not by deduction, but by abduction. You're, you're, abdu- you're looking at the historical record for things that people don't say. Um, so, for example, in I think six was it six eighty four, there was the, the rebellion of Li Jing. Yeah, and he did this huge speech about you know, how women's ru- this woman Wu has ruined the empire, and you know with her vixen flirting and her phoenix regalia and and, and and so on. I had great fun. I spent two days translating this speech, which is this fantastic invective about what a total bitch Wu is, and it lists it lists her crimes. But, and and so this, and Wu actually read this speech and she said, this guy's brilliant. We need him working for us. He's got a fantastic way with words. But the thing is, is that he doesn't list all of the crimes that Wu is today thought to have committed. Now, if you were trying to get an army riled up, ready to lead a revolt, you would tell them everything this horrible woman had done. But what he doesn't mention, for example, is her murdering her newborn daughter, which she's been accused of. Um, he doesn't mention that. And if he doesn't mention it, it makes me think it's a later addition rather than something that it was thought about her at the time. Um, so you have to use these. Uh, but you know, we're already in this kind of quantum world of speculations about what might have happened, which is very unfortunate uh, with this. Um, but the further back you go in history, of course, the more likely it is you're going to be in this sort of position.
0: Mike Dash argues.
1: At its, at its base, unfortunately, it is the fact she's a woman. But I think, you know. I mean, to be a little bit more subtle than that, it goes beyond that. She's a woman who did things that women aren't supposed to do and got away with it. That's the point, right? Um, had she sort of, you know, crashed and burned, we wouldn't be so interested in her because she would have performed as we would have expected a woman would to do. To take power, to seize power, to keep power, to rule effectively, to stay there for 50 years and to die in your own bed at the age of 81, that's not really what's meant to happen. And that's not, you know, that, that's why she's a problem. For Chinese historiography, you know, that it would have been much easier had she you know, been, um, uh, um, had, had sort of inspired a huge rebellion and gone down in flames. Um, there are several previous examples of Chinese emperors who are not unlike her in that. I'm interested in a guy called Wang Mang who, who um, overthrew the Han dynasty around about the time of Christ. And he's exactly the same. I mean, he's a very interesting figure in that he, in many ways, appears to be a reformist who's trying to solve all sorts of major land crises and deal with natural disasters. And again, I mean, the way in which you know, that, um, Chinese historiography perceives him is as a, a sort of hideous, evil usurper. But you know, he, he died the way he was supposed to. He did create a huge rebellion against him and went down, kind of quite literally in flames amidst the sort of ruins of his royal palace. And so, he's a much easier figure to deal with because, obviously, I mean, the heavens had it in for him, and hence he went, you know, went down. It's quite difficult to deal with that when you're looking at Wu because she didn't obviously attract. Um, Condemnation of Heavens by dying at 81, um, having the successfully for 50 years. And so, yes, I mean, you know, from that point of view, she is she's you know, it goes beyond being a woman, as I say. I mean, the real issue is that she succeeded in doing things she wasn't supposed to be able to do. And where you present history with a conundrum like that, then the easiest way to deal with it is to ignore it.
0: Wu has gone down in history for her ruthlessness. While many historians, even today, Do not dispute some of the negative stories around her. Both Jonathan and Mike Dash point out that the actions Wu is condemned for would not have made much of an impression in the reign of a male ruler. If anything, they would have been expected. As Jonathan points out,
2: I would say in Wu's defense, let's be very fair here. Many of the misdeeds that she supposedly committed were something that nobody would have blinked at if she'd have been a man. I mean, her, Taizong, her first husband, killed two of his brothers to to come to power. It's not like he was a, a paragon of of virtue. Um, so, you know, when Wu takes a, a harem of 120 fiercely pretty boys in her old age, if she'd been a man, people would have thought, well, that's not very many. You could probably fit a few more in. Um, but because she's got all of these lovely, you know, bishy boys, you know, uh, doing the equivalent of laughing at her jokes and lighting her cigarettes and peeling her grapes and so on. This is somehow some terrible scandal. Uh, but if she were a man, it wouldn't be. So that, that's the first thing. That a, that a lot of her supposed misdeeds um, are, are things she's just being uh, attacked for, for being a woman, because people are desperately scrabbling for something to attack her for.
0: And Mike Dash states...
2: I mean, there's no obvious reason
1: to say that she wouldn't be ruthless. I mean, it's, the, the point to make is that this was a necessary feature of anybody who was going to succeed in the Chinese government. And of course, I mean, the key thing to say about Wu as a ruler, and and, the key point about the hypocrisy of the way in which he's been viewed, is that the things that she did, if if they had been done by a male, would have been considered worthy of great praise. I mean, she she was ruthless. She probably did kill people or had people killed. But that's what emperors had to do. And if they didn't do it, then they probably wouldn't last as emperors because they would be overthrown by somebody more ruthless than them. Um, and you know, that's particularly true at the beginnings of a dynasty. We're still talking about a, a time when her, 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 her first sponsor was the, the second emperor of a new dynasty. And this is an unstable situation. When you're looking at why Wu matters in terms of history rather than as a you know, as an example of scandal the single most important thing that she does is stabilise the dynasty. And that matters a lot because the Tang dynasty is... One of the most important dynasties in Chinese history. It's it's also you know, one of the most glorious. It's a, a golden age, so to speak, at least in memory of, of, of Chinese power and Chinese culture. And without Wu, it's possible that it wouldn't have got far enough to actually have that golden age. Um, so I think you know, in terms of misconceptions, then you know, to say that to say that she comes from nothing and hence must be in some way some sort of manipulating, scheming sorceress. That's not really true. Um, although you know what she did with her, her opportunity when she came into the imperial palace, that was very unprecedented. Um, and to see her as merely somebody who's ruthless is very, very unfair and not very helpful in terms of understanding her. Because clearly, in order to maintain power, she must have been able to attract support. Um, and I don't think it was possible realistically for, um, especially for someone who's effectively therefore a reserver because she's a woman seeking. That. I don't think it's possible to attract support merely by keeping people scared of you. I think she must have many much more positive qualities than that, and that's really what I wanted to explore when I came and started researching.
0: In recent years, there has been a resurgence of interest in Wu, but her negative reputation has only just begun to change. It's a slow process to fight against commonly held perceptions of people in the past something that mike dash argues
1: well i think i mean this is saying a lot more about us than woo i mean the sad fact is that it's not until very recently that we we as history you know, history has had a serious interest in in most female rulers i mean you know, where it has had a serious interest it has been in them as you know bizarre freaks essentially as a sort of exceptions the idea that you could simply sort of treat female rulers as rulers rather than a special sort of rulers is even today, not that common. So I think that, you know, it's the reason why her reputation hasn't changed is because we have been incredibly slow as a, as a discipline, as a civilization, frankly, in, you know, thinking seriously about women.
0: In regards to her legacy, Wu is only just beginning to receive the respect and interest that she deserves. There is still a long way to go in this regard, and both Jonathan and Mike Dash believe that she should be analyzed in a more rounded way a way that discusses all aspects of her life, not just the dramatic moments. As Jonathan states,
2: I think the thing that I find most under-discussed with Wu, well, two things actually. One is that she was part of this era of female power, that that from Wu you get her her, her daughters and her granddaughters were also... Uh, grew up in an environment where they thought women could do anything, and so therefore they tried to do anything, and that um, so you have this wonderful period where China just was completely different from the way it normally is, um, and and then you have you know decades and then centuries of people desperately trying to slap that down and pretend it didn't happen. Um, the other thing is that uh, you don't have to be a radical feminist to to see the importance of Wu. Um, from a very conservative point of view you could argue ah well she was just a figurehead for the men that behind the scenes there were these shadowy male figures getting stuff done and she was just their kind of agent puppet but that itself i think is a fascinating idea um we and in history we call them the affines it's where the word affinity comes from and the affines are the in-laws who are pushing these female candidates into the palace to intercede for them and get them jobs and look after their cousins and their brothers and their nephews and so on. And it's very big in Japan and in China that you have these entire dynasties that are unmentioned famously, but their daughters are always marrying into the royal family and keeping stuff going.
0: Mike Dash discusses the need to look at Wu's legacy in regards to her influence and effect on China and particularly the Tang dynasty. He also emphasizes the groundbreaking work of late historian, Dr. Harry Rothschild.
1: I think that she should be seen much more than she is as the preserver of Tang. Um, and that's important because, I mean, not just for the China, history of China, but you know, Tang China is a, a very unusual China. I mean, again, we're used to seeing Chinese history as one of the, you know, the middle kingdom, an inward looking area where everything that is good and necessary already exists within China. Everywhere outside, it's just sort of variants. Tang China wasn't like that. Tang China had a lot, uh, a lot more to do with the world. I mean, it had a, a, a quite a successful and long running um, seaborne trade with the, the Abbasid Caliphate in the Middle East, for example. The earliest example of sort of international, uh, intercontinental seaborne trade. Um, it was very receptive to different religions. I mean, the Tang were the people who really solidified Buddhism as a, as a key part of Chinese culture and Chinese society. And that had come from India, of course. Um, and um, it's the zenith of Buddhism, really, in Chinese history. Um, and so, you know, I mean, she, she deserves to be remembered for someone who made all of those things, that that particular sort of civilization, that particular China possible. Um, I think that, you know, the work that is currently being done on her is very fascinating and deserves to be much better known than it is. I mean, it's just incredibly complicated. Frankly, I don't to understand it entirely myself. But um, Rothschild has been working for years on this idea of a sort of composite sovereignty. Um, and the way he sees it is that we was able to create a sort of innovative sort of no- novel paradigms of power that made it possible for her to rule as a woman um, by using you know, a whole sort of pantheon of devils and divinities and domestic mothers as examples of why she as a woman should have power. Um, as a promoter of apocalyptic Buddhism, she brought in sort of avian symbolism. Um, she had a much stronger relationship with what we would call the occult the previous Chinese rulers as well. And all of that was because she needed to have new sources of power in order to actually legitimize her rule as a woman. You know, and, and this goes as far as creating you know, new characters in the Chinese language and, and new sorts of reign names and general manipulation of language, um, which is fascinating because, of course, I mean, we're very interested today in how rulers manipulate language to, to gain use power. And I think that, you know, she definitely deserves to be remembered for doing that and doing that again successfully, um, because it's probably a very, you know, once we understand it, it's probably a very useful and interesting example. Um, I guess, finally, you know, uh, she deserves to be remembered as a great emperor. And The fact that I say emperor, you know, is, is deliberate, because I would love to be able to judge her as a woman and as a person. I just don't think that we can. I think that the legacy that she can reasonably claim is a great ruler,
0: Empress Wu Zetian broke down every barrier put in her path to prevent her from achieving the ultimate role of power in all of China. She was intelligent, ambitious, witty, and ruthless. For much of history, her legacy has been based upon palace rumors and misogynistic writings that were determined to make a female ruler an exception, not a norm. Wu is a controversial figure but one that should be seen with the nuance often prescribed to male rulers, one that acknowledges her flaws, but also appreciates her success.